is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here, including music. And now, Jesse brings us the story of legendary radio DJ, Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack! We just got a report here that hundreds of people are just swarming around the manhole covers all over the city and climbing into them. And a reliable source tells us that they are still trying to find the entrance to the studio where the Wolfman Jack show is taking place. <laughs> oh, gracious me. I think they found us. Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack was born Robert Weston Smith in Brooklyn, New York on January 21st, 1938. As a young teenager, he listened to the radio in his basement, where he pretended to be a DJ. As a little kid, I always listened to this radio station. I was one of, the, I was one of those kind of folks you'd call a radio freak, I guess. You know, I had transoceanic radio and a whole bunch of different other... You know, I listened to all the disc jockeys, different people, and copied styles and figured out how they communicated and what, why they made me feel good. And uh, I, I took all the good, positive things out of most of the the greatest disc jockeys in the world, people like Moondog, who's Alan Freed, you know. Hello, everybody. Hi, all. This is Alan Freed, the old king of the Moondoggers, and a hearty welcome to all our thousands of friends in northern Ohio, Ontario, Canada, western New York, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Big John R. from WLAC down in Nashville, Tennessee, playing that good rhythm and blues. This is John R. Way down south in Dixie. Horse Allen. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Horseman. Magnificent Montague. The Magnificent Montague, starring Monty Woolley. <laughs> These jocks would turn you around and flip you upside down. Magnificent Montague told me one time, if you ain't sweating, you ain't working. So I always remember that. So every time I'm on the radio, I'm sweating, baby. I'm working hard. But radio isn't exactly the easiest profession to break into. And like many of us who work in the business... Smith started out working as an intern. I uh, used to cut school and go hang out at the local black radio station. And I learned how to run the board and everything. And I was spitty then, you know, a gopher for the jocks. You know, I go down and they even let me, they even let me pick liquor up for them in the liquor store. I was only about 13 or 14 years old. And I ran all the errands for them. And they taught me what, what I had to know. And I hung around there and cut school all the time. And uh, my, my parents thought I was going to wind up to be a you know, they didn't know what the hell to do with me. Later, Smith attended the National Academy of Broadcasting in Washington, D.C. While going to classes at night, by day he supported himself as a door-to-door salesman. And although Smith was a high school dropout, he graduated broadcasting school at the top of his class. In 1961, Smith moved to Louisiana and started working at country music station KCIJ. I wanted everybody to love me. Although his show was successful and had many listeners, he was looking for something different. In 1963, it was in Shreveport that Bob Smith created the Wolfman Jack character. Well, you know that everything in entertainment is acting. Even singing is acting. Playing an instrument is acting. And if you want to be a good actor, you create a character for yourself. And then you act it out. You become that character. Now I have fully become the Wolfman character. It's taken me over. I mean, I can't get away from it anymore. And uh, before I used to be able to hide the, the bushes, you know. The character had always been in me. Because there was the hound from Buffalo. And there was Moondog. Wolfman. See, it all fits, you know what I mean? 
It was around this time that Bob Smith had the idea to get his new Wolfman Jack show on the powerful Mexican radio station XERF, a massive 250,000-watt station with a signal that covered the entirety of North America and beyond. Outside of Del Rio, Texas, in a little town of Coahuila, the state of Coahuila, the town of Acuna, Coahuila, Mexico. Now, this is a very powerful radio station on the AM band. Probably the most powerful commercial radio station ever, ever was. In America, anyway. Yeah, like when I go to Disneyland, you know, I never have any trouble in Frontierland. I never have any trouble in Futureland. But for some reason, I always get in trouble when I wind up in Fantasyland. Oh, no! Wolfman Jack's personality sent energy through the radio speakers and attracted the attention of millions of people all across North America on a radio station just south of the Mexican border where the FCC has zero authority. It was so powerful, this radio station, that you could take a fluorescent bulb and go outside and hold it up in the air and it would glow. A car would pull up to the radio station and the lights would stay on. They never used it during the daytime. See, during the daytime, that ionosphere came way down here, you know, so it didn't make no sense. Even with all that power, you'd only reach San Antonio, you know what I mean? They waited till the nighttime came, you know. <laughs> then they could scoot that sucker out all over the world. But when they turned it on during the daytime to test out the transmitter, birds would come flying towards it. Boom. They'd go run out and grab it, cook it for supper. <laughs> really, they used to get these damn birds flying by the... T- turn on the transmitter for a half hour, They'd have supper made, you know what I mean? A car driving from New York to Los Angeles would never lose the station, beaming out at 250,000 watts. Five times the U.S. limit could be picked up all over North America, and at night, as far away as Europe and the Soviet Union. If it's a new record, I'm going to play it. If it's an oldie, I'm going to play it. If it's a fresh artist nobody ever heard, I'm going to play it. That doesn't exist anymore. Great artists out there performing, people like Bonnie Raitt and Lyle Lovett and all these cats who played a good bluesy rock and roll country touch type thing, which is really the happening music. And nobody can put them together in one format. It's kind of like this guy went, no, this guy's country. We can't put him in a rock format. No, no, she's too country. She's too blue. No, can't put her. You know what I mean? It's unforgivable. These magnificent facilities are pumping puke out. They might as well be doing that over the air because and then people are listening and say, oh, listen to that. Oh, isn't that fine? You know what I mean? When we return, the story of Wolfman Jack continues right here on Our American Stories. Hello, who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Hi, this is Frankie Valley, and the guy you're listening to is one of my best friends, Wolfman Jack. You got the Wolfman Jack!
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the one, the only, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> oh, telephone, where am I, Mike? Hello, who's this on the Wolfman Telephone? Hello, this is Nick of Fleetwood Mac, reminding all my fans to listen to the Wolfman Jack show. Listen, it's good. Wolfman Jack! Wolfman's mix of rowdy rock, verbal antics, and raw rhythm and blues began to make the news. His national popularity grew as stories began to appear in Time, Newsweek, Life, and City Newspapers, all asking the same questions. Who is Wolfman Jack? Where did he come from? And how did he get his hands on a Mexican radio station that could be heard all over the world at night? They would run preachers during the early part of the evening, up to around midnight. And then at midnight, they didn't know what the hell they would do. And they'd run country gospel, black gospel, they'd run all kinds of crazy stuff and after the midnight hour. So I wanted to go down to Del Rio to talk to the people who are running that station, see if I couldn't put this character Wolfman Jack on the air. So I showed up on the scene. And uh, the man who was running the station that time was a guy by the name of Arturo Gonzalez, the heaviest dude in that area. He was an international lawyer, self-made man. Became a lawyer through, you know, correspondence courses, man. And he made it on through, from, came over the border mix, and now he owned Del Rio. And he owned Acuna, and he owned that radio station. So I had a meeting with him the next day. So me and my partner decided we'd go out and look at the radio station. Well, I had a brand new uh, Super 88, you know, one of those big Oldsmobile convertibles. I didn't want to take it across the border. I figured I wouldn't have anything left when I got back. So we got a cab driver to take us over there. And then we finally got over there. He took us to Boys Town, which is just... Red Light District. You know, <laughs> all the girls do their thing. So then we found another cab driver. We wanted to go out to see the station. He says, there's no roads to the station. I said, okay, well, take us out to the station. You put some money on him. The guy took us out. All of a sudden, we out there. Black as you can see. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you raised it. You know? We're driving through these sand booths late at night. All of a sudden, out of the distance, See this little red light blinking like this. As we got closer, you could see it was a radio tower. And there was two buildings. One I found out was a building that housed the generator to supply the power to the radio station. The generator was big as a locomotive in a train, you know. I walk in, there's this great big transmitter. Looks from like out of space, you know. Big, beautiful thing. In front of it, there's little coal things sitting. These Mexican dudes, you know, cooking goat meat in front of the transmitter. One guy polishing the damn thing. I go to the back where the studio is, having this meeting. And while they're having the meeting, Reverend Jessup is on the air, preaching, you know, Yes, God, if you send in $25 right now, the Lord's magic number, Reverend Jessup going to send you a personally signed prayer cloth for me. You know, that, that's going on in the background. So I walk in, I meet this cat by the name of Mario Alfaro, who spoke English. None of the other people spoke English. I could communicate with Mexican folks real well. Even though I don't speak it, I, I communicate with them. But this guy spoke English. And I found out what they were doing. They wanted to appoint their own interventor. Because the one that was appointed by Gonzalez, when he was pulling his deal with the preachers, were playing bad head games on the boys who were running the radio station. First of all, they weren't paying them half the time. And then they would come in, if somebody didn't like what was going on, they'd come in and beat the hell out of them, you know? So they wanted to get rid of this guy. 
And here comes the Wolfman on the scene with a pocket full of money. My buddy with me, my Starfire Oldsmobile right across the border. What do you guys need? I got it all here. I started taking out the money and laying it on the table. Immediately they loved me. I laid out about a thousand dollars in hundred dollar bills. I said, I want you all to have one. And that'll show that you can trust me. Well, they were amazed. So immediately I took control of the radio station. From then on, it was a process of calling the preachers and getting the money coming to me. I sent the boys off to Mexico City to get a new interventor to take over the radio station. In the meantime, I walked into the situation and took over this radio station. Here I was going to present this tape to Arturo Gonzalez to put Wolfman Jack on the air. And here I was on the air. The next night, of course, I went on the air as Wolfman Jack. And that's how Wolfman Jack was born. By 1966, Robert Smith was now living as Wolfman Jack 24-7, had been broadcasting on XERF for nearly five years. Major music artists such as Todd Rundegren, Leon Russell, Freddie King, and the Guess Who all produced chart-topping hits written about the Wolfman. By the early 70s, he was living in Beverly Hills, being heard all over the world and making a lot of money. Maybe too much money. Because in 1970, without warning, the Mexican government took possession of XERF. And suddenly, Wolfman Jack was off the air. Clap for the Wolfman. He gon' reach your record high. Clap for the Wolfman. You gon' dig until the day you die. But the Wolfman got to work capitalized on his fame by editing down his old show tapes and selling them to radio stations everywhere, becoming one of the very first syndicated rock and roll programs in America. And now, here's Wolfman Jack. You know, I'm a real audio video freak, and I've tried playing with a lot of video games in my time, even before they were invented, as I was a real fan. And comparing them all, well, I come to one conclusion. None are as exciting as Harry Carey video games. They have the best picture, the best color, and above all, they're more violent than any other. Choose from the catalog of 456 different games, including Sidewalk Suicide, Machines That Mangle People, and my favorite, Mass Destruction of Everything on the Face of the Earth. Hey, when it comes to video games, don't be fooled. Commit to Harry Carey! <laughs> At his peak, Wolfman Jack was heard on more than 2,000 radio stations in 53 countries. In 1972, he was hired to be the announcer, interviewer, and co-host of NBC TV's late-night music series, The Midnight Special. In 1973, he appeared on the film American Graffiti as himself, directed by George Lucas. I said, somebody wants to see you over Universal, they want you to do a movie. I said, okay. So I ran over there, and who's sitting behind the desk? George Lucas. I said, what's the matter, man? You need money, right, to do this film? You want me to contribute to the film? He said, no, Wolfman, we want you to be in the movie. I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And then I found out, he gave me the script, I read the movie. I knew it was a hit because it was Americana. It was what we do in the evening time. You listen to a great disc jockey, play great rock and roll records, you meet guys, you meet ladies, and you flash your car around, and you do the best thing, that's the most fun in the world. It's a shame a lot of kids can't do that nowadays. His broadcasts tie the film together, and the character played by Richard Dreyfuss catches a glimpse of the mysterious Wolfman in this pivotal scene. 
Are you the Wolfman? <sighs> no, man, I'm not the Wolfman. He's on tape. <laughs> the man is on tape. Well, uh, where where is he now? I mean, uh, where does he work? The Wolfman is everywhere. Well, I gotta give him this note. The Wolfman comes in here occasionally, bringing tapes, you know, to check up on me and whatnot. Yeah. And the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. It's a great, big, beautiful world out there. And here I sit, sucking on popsicles. Wanting to leave? I'm not a young man anymore. And the Wolfman gave me my start in the business, and I like it. I tell you what, if I can possibly do it tonight, I'll try to relay this dedication in and get it on the air for you later on. That would be terrific. Really. Thanks. Yes, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Really, I appreciate it. On July 1st, 1995, Wolfman Jack died of a heart attack at his home in Belvedere, North Carolina. <laughs> Rock on, baby. We gonna do it right here. Rock and roll yourself to death. Oh, mercy. Give me some more. That day, he finished broadcasting what would be his last Wolfman Jack radio show from the Hard Rock Cafe in Washington, D.C. He was very anxious to get home, as he'd been on the road for several days on a promotional book tour for his autobiography. After a flight from D.C. and a limousine ride from the airport, Wolfman was happy to be home. He walked up the driveway, went inside his house, hugged his wife, and dropped dead. This is our American story. Show, baby. I hope all you people taking down all your pictures, cause we gonna be playing some of that loud song to wall music, baby. continue with our American stories and it's time for our American Dreamers series which is sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network and they're dedicated to helping small businesses grow into big ones by driving public policy that allows just that and our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named Donald Baumgartner but you'll be glad to have met him. I was born in 1930, which is the beginning of the Depression. Prospects were not good for the economy, for the country, for my parents, for anybody, as a matter of fact. It was not a really wonderful time to be born, but my parents were both well-educated in a vocational sort of way. I mean, they didn't go to fancy colleges, but they went to trade schools. My mother graduated from Mosher. My dad took courses in engineering. 
And he had a good job when he married my mother in 1929. But when the Depression hit, he was out of work. It got interesting for a while. One summer, he had his speedboat, and he gave speedboat rides. And we lived in a tent on Miller Beach in Indiana. But eventually, when the summer ended, he took the family up to the farm in Minnesota, and we all milked cows. I know he was totally miserable back on the farm. This is not a direction he wanted to go in. And my mother would happily made him even more miserable because she hated the farm and farm life. She was a city girl from Chicago. Dad got a job offer as a toolmaker, and then from there got a job as an engineer in Milwaukee. And while he was working there, he learned of a need for a job shop. A small manufacturer that only does custom jobs. And he started buying machine tools and started in the garage doing job shop work. Eventually that grew to a point where he didn't need to work anymore. I was born very fortunately. I like to say I was born on third base, but I was damn well aware that I hadn't hit a triple. I mean, I say it with all humility, I had a really good head start. My success could not have happened without the family that I had in back of me and without all of the push that I got from them and all of the work ethic that I was taught. I mean, this was a wonderful family. My mother and father were divorced in 1939, and they each married somebody that I truly adored. I had a great stepmother and a great stepfather. So what I wound up with in life is, talk about being blessed, is I had four really good parents. I mean, and they were very different. My stepfather was a baseball player, played for the New York Giants, and he was a professional golfer. And he was a funny guy. He told jokes continuously. It's like having Henny Youngman as your stepfather. He had lines like, you can't put a feather in a chicken's ass and call it a peacock. He went to North Division High School. And North Division, when he went there, was pretty much in the center of the Jewish community. And he swears that their fight song was, Kafilta fish, kafilta fish, we're the boys from North Division. Easy, Ike, Maury, Sam, we're the guys that eat no ham. I mean, the guy was a riot. I mean, I was crazy about him. In 1940, he got drafted, went off to war wrote me letters from Africa, from Sicily, from Italy, from France, from Germany. I mean, he was with Patton and he was, made the invasion at Casablanca, spent the entire war in Europe. I mean, he made every major invasion. He was in Palermo, he was at Anzio. He made an invasion in the south of France. I don't know what he liberated down there, but... He saw the, the topless beaches. I think he, he made the beaches for... Saint-Tropez. For, Saint for topless uh, yeah. sunbathing. I mean, it wasn't much of an invasion in the south of France, but anyhow, he did move in on into Germany. He had quite a war record, and in the meantime, my dad's business grew and grew and grew. It got bigger and bigger. He was making parts for the war effort. When we got attacked at Pearl Harbor, we went to work. We built, in a four-year period, 22 aircraft carriers. American manufacturers did. It's, it's mind-boggling what people can do when they're put to it, and Americans can do. I mean, we just absolutely, tanks were coming out, God, they were flying off the end of the assembly line. The tanks, the guns, the, all of the equipment you need, the trucks, the, all the war machinery that you needed, we produced and produced in mass. And this is a country coming out of a depression, coming out of some really hard times. 
Detroit became the arsenal of the world. My dad's company was making parts for all of these things. He was making parts for the airplanes, for the predecessor to the DC-10, for tanks. And he started out with a small machine shop with a handful of employees. By the time the war was over, he had 300 employees. And it's American ingenuity that got us to where we were in those wars. I mean, my God, before America came into World War II, things were looking pretty damn grim with Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. But how did we win the war? Through our production genius, American know-how, American business, led it all. At several points, while Donald was talking about America's arsenal of democracy, he almost seemed to cry. Well, I get emotional about some of the things that we've done. An emotion of pride more than anything. Yeah, I get choked up over the pride of our nation, pride of what we can accomplish, pride of what we've done. It's pretty impressive. For some reason or other, my parents thought of me as being incredibly capable at 10. I mean, my mother had a restaurant, and I started out by washing dishes, then waiting on counters. By the time I'm 13, I'm in back of the griddle, you know, cooking. I mean, she just brought me right up through the ranks. And when I wasn't working for my mother, if I'd go visit my father, I mean, he'd put me to work as well. When he started this Milwaukee shipbuilding thing, at the end of the war, my dad bought a used Coast Guard cutter, the surplus. They were, all these Navy vessels and Coast Guard vessels were surplus because there was way too many of them at the end of the war. And so we took the one Coast Guard cutter and I helped him with it. We brought it from Maryland to Milwaukee. He left me in Baltimore. I, what the hell, I was 15 years old. And he said, you need to hire a crew. So I put an ad in the Baltimore, I'm 15 years old, I put an ad in the Baltimore Sun. I, I, I hired a deckhand and I hired a cook and got the boat across the East Coast through New York City, through the Hudson, up through the Trent Canal, the Erie Canal, all the damn way to Milwaukee. I mean, I'm 15 years old. It's a hell of a lot of responsibility for a kid. My mother left me. She and my stepfather, the baseball player, golfer, moved to Florida when I was in high school and left me to run the restaurant and the used car lot that was in back of the restaurant and the sign that was on top of the restaurant for Miller Brewery. I was in charge of getting all this done and sending her these rent checks for the used car lot, for the restaurant, for the sign, and take care of her house on Menlo Boulevard. So I grew up without a hell of a lot of parental supervision because my mother took off for the winter. Left me at home with a maid by the name of Lila, who was a dwarf. She was three feet tall. Needless to say, I had a lot of really nice parties in high school. I became very popular. Lila was fine with the parties. I mean, she, she wasn't much of a disciplinarian. I'm afraid my parents would probably be jailed today for the responsibilities and the freedom they gave me. I mean, I had total freedom and also I had total responsibility. It comes with that freedom. Was that a better way to raise a kid? Well, maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure. It worked out for me just fine. And if you're enjoying Donald's voice and story, and we are here in the studio, you can get even more of it in his terrific book, With the Wind at His Back, The Charmed and Charitable Life of Donald Baumgartner, which you can pick up 
and Amazon.com. After these messages from our sponsors, the rest of Donald's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and return to Donald Baumgartner's story. It's an interesting segue, isn't it? How the hell do you go from shipbuilding to paper cup machines? Well, I was managing Milwaukee shipbuilding, and when the Korean War ended, I have a couple of three engineers, I've got a bunch of assemblers, I've got a small shop, have done all this Korean War work, now we've got nothing much to do. And so we started looking for products. And one of the products we came up with was a paper cup forming machines, something my dad had done earlier, back in the 30s. He had made a machine for making the pleated cups that you see used for souffles and ramekins and dentist office sometimes. They're still out there. They're flat bottom, all pleated cup. And then we came up with a code cup and then we knew the direction that we wanted to go was a flat bottom two-piece paper cup, which is a typical coffee cup. And we designed and developed a machine to do that and offered it to the Milwaukee Shipbuilding Corporation. The name of the company no longer seemed very fitting, so we changed the name to Paper Machinery Corporation. That was about 1956. Nobody thinks about it. Somebody made a machine that made a paper cup. I mean, why would they think about that at all? It's just there. We had a hard time finding a market for the two-piece cup forming machines because all of these two-piece cups that were on the market were formed by three or four very large companies. Dixie, it's a household name. Lily Tulip, another household name. Solo Cup, Continental Can. And these four companies made their own machines and were not anxious for me to be selling machines to start up competitors of theirs. So the going was pretty slow here. They wouldn't buy any because they didn't want us to succeed. So I turned to a foreign market. I started traveling overseas and I sold machines in Cuba and in Venezuela, sold machines in England and in God knows in Italy. By the time I was 30, I think I'd been to every major country in the world that sold machines in Israel and in Turkey and where the hell else, some very remote places in the world and cone cup making machines were very popular in third world countries because they used them for ice with flavored ice. They'd pour ice on it with a strawberry flavor and it put it in this little cone cup. And it didn't really take off big until we sold machines into Japan. Coffee started to get very popular in Japan and all of a sudden they're starting to buy machines in quantities. So things really started to move for us pretty well. 
Herb Geiger, who's running vending machines here in Milwaukee and buying coffee cups for his vending machines. He doesn't like the price he's paying for his coffee cups, so he thinks he'd like to make his own. So we sold it to Herb Geiger, and this was our entree into the American market. One machine wasn't anywhere near enough. Pretty soon he bought 10 machines. Then other vendors from around the country were seeing making his own cups rather than paying the premium that they had to pay for the traditional suppliers of paper cups. So they started buying machines in quantity, and all of a sudden we're selling machines in lots of 10 and 20. I mean, everything fell into place for me. I'm making machines to make paper cups, and along comes Ray Kroc. The founder of McDonald's. With a massive need for paper disposables. And then if that wasn't good enough, then all of a sudden coffee became the beverage of choice. And all of a sudden, business is booming. I mean, I started out with very little prospects. And we got lucky. So what's the key to my success? Well, a hell of a lot of it was just good fortune or good luck, I think. For 40 years, I was profitable. Never had a loss in 40 straight years. But being the sole owner of the company, I had a lot of options as to what to do with all those profits. And what I did, for the most part, was put it back into facility, back into new products, back into new machinery, back into wages and better people. I poured almost all of the profits directly back to, into the business, 90% or more. Instead of in his own bank account. Yeah, because I like to live well. I like nice cars, I like nice clothes. I mean, I like, you know, hot women. I mean, all, the, all those things are expensive, especially maybe the last one. I mean, but uh, the company always came first. There was never a question in my mind, ever, ever, ever. If it was a matter of a new machine tool or a new sports car, the machine tool always won. I mean, the company always came first. And that was a matter of principle that I stuck to without ever a variation for the entire length. I was there almost 60 years with that company, so that's how long it was. When my son John, who's in his late 60s, starts talking to me about transitioning, I'm thinking, Jesus, John is president of the company and he wants to quit. What the hell am I gonna do? You know, I come to work every day. I'm still got my feet in. I'm still involved. I'm still engaged. At 85 years old at this point. And I'm not really anxious to quit. And I'm trying to think of some way that I could, you know, maintain a position for myself and sell the company and take care of John. And so we brought in Baird. We brought in Foley, our attorneys. And they discussed selling to a strategic buyer. And the immediate concern came to my mind is where the hell are my employees going to happen to my employees if they sell to a strategic buyer and they move the company out of town. In fact, my dad, twice he sold companies that he built and twice the companies were moved out of state. Once to California, one to Illinois. He sold a company to Rockwell International and that wound up out of state and wound up with almost none of the employees staying with the company. And I felt badly about that because I, you know, I was close to my dad. I knew all of his employees pretty well. 
and I felt that I didn't want to be involved in the same sort of thing. Then I heard about ESOP and I started studying it and thinking about it. ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. It's basically a fancy way of saying that Don could give the ownership of the company to his employees and they could decide to keep the business where it was forever. And I brought it up to Beard and I brought it up to Foley and Lardner. And my Foley attorneys said, that, no way, it's just the wrong way to go. I mean, ESOP is a terrible idea. But the more the attorneys advised me against it, the more hell-bent on it I was. Well, they thought I could get a hell of a lot more money as a strategic sale than I could as an ESOP. I probably left $100 million on the table, or maybe more, I don't know. I never even looked for a strategic buyer because I didn't want the company to go out of state. I didn't want these guys to lose their jobs. It was, it was way too important to me that the company stay where it was and an ESOP proved to be the right answer. And I'd had enough money put away anyhow so that I, wasn't, I was comfortable enough. I didn't need another $100 million, I guess. And with all that extra money, it's just, I was just going to give it away anyhow. We had a good time turning it over. John and I planned and Donna helped. We put a tent up in the parking lot and hired a band. <laughs> brought in a bar. All day people are wondering what the hell's going on in the parking lot. At the end of the shift, I called everybody out. They all come into the tent. There's about 250 people in the tent. And I decided to bore them to death and tease the shit out of them by telling long stories about the history of the company. And I said, I suppose you're all wondering, you know, where we're going next. Well, it's true, we have sold the company. And I'd like you to meet the new buyers. And they're all looking around. I said, turn to your neighbor because it's you. And they just started screaming and applauding and jumping up and down. And we got pictures of this. And they were, the pictures were taken for the newspaper and they were above the fold in Seattle and in, in, in Los Angeles, down in New Orleans and Atlanta. We were above, we were, we were a, picture, a picture of our employees jumping up and down with these. Uh, hit the media across the country. I mean, we got an enormous amount of publicity over this. <laughs> I said to one of the employees after the ESOP, I said, well, Rich, this is going to sure change your life. You can retire a millionaire. I said, Mr. Baumgartner, I'm already a millionaire. So apparently the 401k program, which we've encouraged and done, worked out very well. I've always believed in paying top wages, and believed in giving top benefits to attract the best people we can because I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to do this by myself. I need people, good people, and lots of them. And what a story and what a voice. And as he said, the company always comes first. In the end, companies are people. Uh, they're not, well, they're not anything but people. And Donna and, and Donald, and Donna's his bride, have made millions, multi-millions of dollars worth of contributions to Milwaukee's arts centers. And my goodness, go to Milwaukee sometime and you'll see for a city that size, it punches way beyond its weight. A friend of Donald's named Nancy Einhorn says that he's, quote, lived three times in the time that others lived just once. An attitude towards life that's leading him to race McLarens on ice in the Arctic Circle at 88 years old. And if you enjoy Donald's voice and story, you can get so much more of it in his book, With the Wind at His Back, 
the charmed and charitable life of Donald Baumgartner. He's the founder of Paper Machinery Corporation in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. To see what Donald saw, to see his father supply the parts and all of the equipment that ultimately built the arsenal of democracy that helped save the world, he put it best when he said it was American ingenuity, American know-how, American business that saved Western civilization. And indeed, it did. Donald Baumgartner's story, here on Our American Stories. American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and our next story is about a comedian whose jokes came so fast that when you laughed at one you probably were going to miss the next one here's Greg Hengler anybody can repeat a Rodney Dangerfield joke but nobody could tell one like the man himself that's because his humor was drawn from a life so hard that the only way to survive it was to laugh at it and we all do In fact, Rodney is one of the very few comedians whose act connects and appeals to every generation. This is his story. You know, people say to me, how did you get a name like Rodney Dangerfield? I'll tell you what happened. Hi. I saw you read in the paper. I want to improve my personality. Good luck. What's your name? Jack Roy. Jack Roy, you got two first names. Your name is your biggest problem. This is like a comeback for me in show business. I was in showbiz years ago and I quit. And to give you an idea how well I was doing at the time I quit, I was the only one who knew I quit. <laughs> What's the name? Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield? With a name like Rodney Dangerfield, you have to either be really funny or you have to be an idiot. And you were really funny as Rodney Dangerfield. If you look at his image and his material and the way he dressed, the way he conducted himself, the name Rodney Dangerfield just fit. Suppose I use the name, I don't like it. Can I bring it back? Okay, just do me one favor. While you're using the name, don't give it a bad name. This persona is what made this man special. What a crowd, what a crowd. Rodney was totally unique. He was a different kind of performer. There was never one like that before. And there's never been one like that since. He was funny. And he was every man. And Rodney Dangerfield, if he was anything else, was authentic. Rodney's jokes were all true. They were all based on his, his real perception of himself. I tell you, it's not easy being me. And this whole thing, it's not easy being me. It wasn't. He, he always felt someone was trying to take advantage of him. Tell you can't get help today. More going to betray him or, you know, that he'd been somehow wronged. But, and that just was something from his childhood. He's so wronged by his parents that he can never overcome it. Tonight, Rodney Dangerfield, comedian, actor, the man who from coast to coast gets no respect This is your life! Rodney Dangerfield was born Jacob Cohen on November 22, 1921 in Long Island, New York. He was the son of Jewish parents, vaudeville performer Phil, and housewife Dorothy. 
Here's comedian Argus Hamilton, Rodney's second wife, Joan Dangerfield, and literary agent Chris Calhoun. Well, I told my old man, never took me to the zoo. He said, if they want you, they'll come and get you. He was born a really poor, rejected kid. His father, uh, who adopted the stage name Roy, was on a comedy team in vaudeville and always on the road. Rodney's dad was absent from his life, which was um, a real source of, of heartache for Rodney. His father saw him twice a year for about two 30-minute visits. What a childhood I had. My mother never breastfed me. She told me she liked me as a friend. <laughs> his mother, a beautiful Hungarian Jew, couldn't stand him, didn't even tend him, hardly even babysat him. He told me she never gave him a hug or a kiss, or, or even a compliment. Last week I looked up my family tree, I found out I'm the sap. He was really left to just go play in the backyard, and um, there'd be half a sandwich on the, on the porch, and he had to fend for himself. Even though his mother didn't show him much affection, it didn't stop him from being a, a loyal, devoted son. He worked at a newsstand before school, when he was in grade school, and he took every job he could get his hands on and, and was actually the breadwinner of the family. He was starved for affection, attention. He tried to do good things. He worked very hard to get good grades, and he presented his mother with a report card. She wouldn't even look at it. She just says, give me that sign, and she says, you know what you gotta do. And, well, who are you trying to get good marks for if your mother don't want to look at it? When Rodney was 12, his mother, Dorothy, moved them to Kew Gardens in Queens. Here's Chris Calhoun. His aunt, Pearlie, and uh, Rodney's older sister were going to the movies, and he begged them to go. Aunt Pearlie said, well, if you scrub up, you can go. So he ran up the stairs and washed his face and hands. And he came back down, and they were halfway down the block laughing and running away from him. And he screamed out, please, I want to go, please, I want to go, and they never came back. He actually got his first laugh at five years old. He was still hungry after dinner and told his mother that he'd like some more food. And she said, well, you've had sufficient. And he said, I didn't even have any fish. Sadly, everybody laughed, but he noticed that that mood lifted, and he never forgot that, and kind of spent the rest of his life trying to get that good feeling back. He was very unhappy, so he tried to think of comedy relief. So he tried to think of some way to write a funny joke or get a funny thought, and just to break up the uh, how unhappy you are, I guess. He told me many times that when he would get laughter from the audience, that was the closest warm feeling he could compare to love. At the age of 15, Rodney Dangerfield began writing jokes. When he turned 18, he took his father's stage name, Phil Roy, and started his comedic career under the stage name Jack Roy in hopes of becoming a professional comedian like his idols, W.C. Fields, Groucho Marx, and Laurel and Hardy. It all started when he was working as a young man in a club in Brooklyn called the Polish Falcon. And when the comic got off stage uh, one evening, he got up and did a few jokes. Boy, what a racket. You don't know what you go through in show business. You're kid in show business. At the time, I was a kid and doing what the kids do. I lacked maturity. I lacked an image. Here's comedian Harry Basil. When Rodney started in his show business uh, as Jack Roy, he didn't know what he was doing yet. 
He sang on stage. He even used props for a while. He didn't know what type of a comedian he wanted to be. As Jack Roy, he was really doing impressions. Humphrey Bogart and, and Cary Grant and Jimmy Durante. And they weren't that good, really. And what a story. It makes so much sense now that we're listening to it, all of us, right? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the life story of Rodney Dangerfield, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Rodney Dangerfield singing in the movie Easy Money. Let's return to where we left off. It's the early 1940s, and Rodney, known at the time as Jack Roy, is struggling as a young New York comedian. Here's the former producer for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Stan Irwin, former William Morris agent Ed Summerfield, and comedians Tommy Smothers and Rob Schneider. Jack Roy was also known as Mad Jack. Mad Jack comes from his attitude. He was angry on the street all the time. I said, what are you so mad about? Ah, you don't know what I go through, Eddie. Every day it's something else. This agent and this girl and this club owner, can't they see I'm funny? He said, I appeal to everyone who could do me absolutely no good. He was an angry man, but a, a sweet, angry man. Well, I never saw him happy. He was always complaining. He was always complaining about this or that. And it sounded like a routine, but it, it wasn't a routine. Rodney suffered depression his whole life. He wasn't kidding. He really, he was uh, a depressed guy. He was down. I mean, this afternoon I was in a bar. They told me to get out. They wanted to start the happy hour. In 1949, Rodney is 28. Having been on the comedy circuit for over 10 years and with nothing to show for his efforts. But things started to look up for Rodney when he met a beautiful jazz singer named Joyce Indig. The two decided to get married quit show business, and settle down. Rodney went out and uh, became an aluminum siding salesman in the 1950s. And a lot of comedians made day money selling aluminum siding across the river in New Jersey. And Dangerfield was an excellent aluminum siding salesman. He believed that um, making the customer like you was an important part of getting the sale. And so he, he kind of, you know, used his humor to help him get his foot in the door. I live in a town called Bergenfield, New Jersey, and my best friend, Mark Levine, his parents' claim to fame was that Rodney Dangerfield did the aluminum siding on their house. And he told Murray and Gloria Levine, I'm going to be a stand-up. And he told them a joke about an egg. Sex with me, that's ridiculous. My wife makes love to me. There's always a reason for it. One night she used me to time an egg. So he tells them that joke and gets in his car and drives away. And Mrs. Levine goes, Murray, he'll never make it. When he was out of show business working this square gig as a aluminum siding salesman and living in the suburbs and going on the road and taking orders, lining up contractors, he continued to write jokes. And he kept a duffel bag 
in his bedroom at home. And he would just write funny jokes, funny jokes, funny jokes for 11 years. He filled up this duffel bag with funny jokes. Well, the other night I felt like having a few drinks. Someone over to the bartender and said, surprise me. He showed me a naked picture of my wife. Joyce kept her promise she quit the business. Rodney, Jack Roy, still had the bug in him to perform. Rodney and Joyce would have two children, Brian and Melanie. But Rodney's inability to leave show business was breaking up his marriage. I got divorced, and uh, I, life sort of caved in on me, and I said, I'll go back in show business. You can't find perfection in relationships, but I can find it in my work. He had filled, as he said, a bag of jokes that he had been writing. So he had uh, a wealth of material. So even though he had not been on the stage, he had been working, working on his act and working on his jokes. In 1962, at a failed stint in comedy, a failed marriage, and no money in the bank, Rodney returned to the comic circuit at the age of 40. But these struggles, along with his maturity, made Rodney a better comedian. His stage name, on the other hand, Jack Roy, was lacking. He went to a club that he had worked in the past, and, um, and the club owner always ran the names of the acts in the Friday paper, The Mirror. And Rodney wasn't sure he'd do very well. So instead of using the name Jack Roy, he told the club owner, George McFanna, to just make up a name. So he made up a name. Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield? See, you just heard it. You're starting to say it. Listen to me. Take the name. He was surprised that the name was Rodney Dangerfield. Um, But it went so well that night, uh, he killed. And he thought maybe, maybe that's the name for him. So it stuck and kind of became his lucky charm. The name change helped. But the angry guy routine also needed a makeover. First thing he came up with is, with me, nothing goes right. I tell you, with me, you know, nothing works out. And then he would write jokes accordingly to that. Every time I leave my house, my wife tells me to call her in case something goes right. Rodney's new routine was working, earning him bookings in more prestigious venues. But at the age of 44, Rodney knew he needed more exposure. There was no better venue at the time than the Ed Sullivan Show. But unknowns had to audition, so Rodney auditioned in 1966, and he killed it. But Sullivan proved to be harder to win over. Sullivan never called after that. I said, gee, what do you have to do, man? I tell you, I don't get a break with nothing. Rodney Dangerfield. After three long weeks, Rodney got the call to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show on March 5th, 1967. I'll tell you, my apartment, nothing works. I got a radio, I can hardly hear it. I got a television set, I can't make out the picture. But when my wife opens her mouth, perfect reception. (laughs) With my wife, we got nothing but arguments. And I can never get a word in. The other night I told her, I said, there's another side to that argument. She said, I know, my mother's coming right over. Here's owner of Rodney's comedy club, Dangerfields, Anthony Bavacquia. The Ed Sullivan Show, uh, if you did well, if the ovation was uh, good, uh, better than normal, Ed Sullivan would call you back to take a bow. And that's it! So his ovation was good. Uh, so as the uh, ovation is starting to dip a little bit, uh, Ed Sullivan would be getting ready to bring on the next act. Rodney would, uh, from behind the curtain, would peek his head out. The uh, applause 
uh, it went sky high, and Sullivan, uh, encore, take a take a bow, Rodney. So Rodney would come out and take another bow, and then he would run back behind his, uh, the curtain. Ed Sullivan never knew that. Rodney earned $1,000 for his first appearance on Sullivan. When it went well, he was booked more times at $1,500 a pop. Here's Joan and comedians Harry Basil and Dennis Blair. For Rodney, it was a very, very slow climb. In fact, even when he was doing Sullivan, he was still selling aluminum siding. A customer said to his secretary, uh, is Mr. Roy in show business? We saw him on the... The Ed Sullivan show the other night. Oh, no, no, he does that on the side. <laughs> on the side. He shows up at this guy's house to do aluminum siding. At about 6 o'clock, he's doing the side, and he says to the guy, Hey, do uh, you mind if I come in and watch the TV for a little while? The guy goes, okay. And he turns on the TV, and Rodney's on TV, and he's watching himself. And the guy at the house is standing there and looking at him and looking at the TV going... What kind of alternate universe am I in? The guy who's doing my sighting is on Sullivan. Rodney also established his signature look and manic style of delivery. Here's Rodney, Stan Irwin, Pat Cooper, and producer George Slaughter. First time I did the Ed Sullivan show. I got dressed, I wore a black suit and a red tie and a white shirt. Then I did well, and he brought me back to do another show. What am I going to wear the second time? I thought to myself, I don't know what to wear. I can't figure it out. I wear the same thing. So I got known for, for a red tie and a white shirt and a black suit quite by accident. His mannerisms were individual. I mean, the reaching for the tie. No one else did it because if you did do it, you thought of Dangerfield. He was a fidgety guy. The sweat was real. The ticks were real. He was constantly pulling, constantly nervous. So that was just part of him that worked for the character. When you talk like Rodney Dangerfield... I'll tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? Some people, they think you're having a nervous breakdown. But when Rodney, that's his persona. He walked out, and it looked like, uh, hey, you just came in here, I want to tell you something. And it would look like an accident. Rodney looked like an accident to begin with, right? Before a car accident with no survivors, but it was no accident. He prepared those jokes, the routine of those jokes, the construction of the jokes. Are uh, you kidding? Are you kidding? I know I'm ugly. I asked a bartender to make me a zombie. Told me God beat him to it. The classic Rodney Dangerfield joke is, oh, I was ugly. Well, you set it up. I came out. That's the middle. The doctor slapped my mother. You know, it, and it, it reverses right at the end, and it has a meaning, and he loved that type of joke. I'll tell you, my wife, she never went for me. Well, the first time I called her up, she told me, come on over, there's nobody home. I went over, there was nobody home. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story, a man taking all that pain, all that grief, sublimating it, and turning it into an act, turning it into a living. That line, I couldn't find perfection in relationships, so I tried to find it in work really chilling. When we come back, more of the story of Rodney Dangerfield here on Our American Stories.
Shut up, baby! And you're listening to Rodney Dangerfield singing in the movie Back to School, and I can't help but laugh. Just one of my top three favorite comedies. And it's because of Rodney. No one else could have done it like him. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the story of Rodney Dangerfield. Armed with a new name, Look and Delivery, Rodney was gaining fans all across America. But his rocket didn't actually launch until he stumbled upon the greatest hook in the history of comedy. Here's comedians Dom Herrera, Robert Townsend, Phyllis Diller, Fred Willard, George Lopez, Brad Garrett, Louis Anderson, and Dennis Blair. It was just perfect. It was the most brilliant hook ever. He tapped into a brand that spoke to everybody in America. He had those wonderful bulging eyes and the thick and the great delivery and of all things, that wonderful line. No respect. I don't got no respect at all. You can the story of my life. No respect. No respect. And the audience just cheered. It's like Tony Bennett starting out with I Left My Heart in San Francisco. And now, oh, here it comes. This is what we're waiting for. It's the same thing when I was a kid. No respect. The time my old man took me to the zoo. They thanked him for returning me. From a kid who doesn't get to stay out and play longer, or the housewife and mother who works all day. At some point during the day, they go, I don't get no respect. Jack Benny just thought that uh, Rodney had probably the best image there ever was for comedy. Jack Benny came down to Rodney's dressing room once and said, you know, my image is an image of a cheap guy. It's okay. And he said to Rodney, but your image gets into the soul of everybody. Everybody thinks they're not being respected. He knew he was starting to get a a good reaction from the audiences, and he had booked this gig uh, in Long Island with 400 people, and he, he brought his dad to that show. His dad said, you know... I think you've got something. And Rodney never forgot that. And he was so glad that 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 approval came before uh, his father passed. Rodney's hard work was paying off. But there was only one gig guaranteed to land his rocket on the moon. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Here's comedian Richard Lewis. That five and a half minutes, more people will see you on that monologue than if you played, say, this nightclub here three times a day, you know, for like 50 years. So you better treat that six minutes like it's like gold. Johnny Carson got 20 to 25 million viewers a night. The whole country watched the Johnny Carson show. And most importantly, the whole industry watched the Tonight Show. You didn't get on the Tonight Show. (laughs) You weren't happening. You also could end your career there, too. And if he uh, said, sit down, that was the ultimate. But to have a chance at a sit down, you first had to book the show. But that was impossible for Rodney because of a mistake he made years earlier. Now, I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was a rough shape, you know? He had been at the improv and he wrote a very funny joke and it got a pretty good laugh at the club. And yet, a few days later, it was coming out of Johnny Carson's mouth. He was so upset that he wrote a letter to Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was very upset with the letter. Didn't really know Rodney, and he said, who is this guy that's saying that I have a thief on the staff? And Johnny did not want to use uh, Rodney for the longest time. A few years later, a couple of the talent bookers uh, came up to him after a performance and said, okay, you got you got to do Johnny's show. And Rodney said, I'd, I'd like to, but, you know, he doesn't want me. 
And they said, oh, he's forgotten about that. He's forgotten about that by now. And so they booked a date, and Rodney was like, oh, so happy, and telling everyone, calling everybody. And then his phone rang, and well, guess what? John is not over it. One night, Rodney was at the Copacabana, where Tony Bennett was on in 1969. And Johnny Carson pulled up in a limo with Stan Irwin, his producer, and saw the crowd just trying to get in and decided to give up. Rodney personally set him up with a table for two. And Rodney looked at, at Johnny and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Johnny said, forget about it. And the next thing he knew, would you welcome Mr. Rodney Danger? And Rodney became a national institution just from, just from how much Johnny liked. I'll tell, tell you last week was a rough week for me last week. I saw my kid and a milkman going to a father and son dinner. It was great Did you come in six minutes of all home runs. Rodney was not interested in entertaining an audience. He wanted to pulverize him. He wanted to kill him. Ladies and gentlemen, Rodney Dangerfield. He wanted to leave him on the floor left. I tell you, I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? Now, last week I saw my doctor. I told him, doctor, every day I wake up, I look in the mirror, I want to throw up. What's wrong with me? He said, I don't know, but your eyesight is perfect. Well, you should tell me, when you go on the caution show, you got to do damage. You got to do damage. <laughs> there was a stand-up and there was the panel part. Which can I deliver to Johnny? And which do I want to play to the audience with? This was all part of the craft. He just killed Johnny. I mean, Johnny would literally cry. And and he was one of the few that could do that in the industry. I'll tell you, all you hear is sex with sex. I had it up to here. Yeah. Not lately, though, you know? <laughs> I don't think I ever saw Johnny Carson laugh as long or as loud <laughs> as when Rodney was next to him. Here's Jeff Ross. Well, those are the best clips, you know, when you see Johnny Carson laughing, and he was such a great setup man with uh, Rodney, so they had a fun chemistry. It used to take me three months to prepare a talk show between the stand-up and the panel. I needed 32 new jokes that were all funny, this and that, and, and that's how long it would take me to prepare six or eight minutes. When he um, would write a joke, he would literally write a joke. And he would start maybe with a, with a thought and write that down. And then he'd keep kind of adding to it and reworking it and reworking it. Well, last week I went to the track. I showed off the opening gun. They killed my horse. Every show that he did on television, his handwritten Mike Douglas, Mer Griffin, Steve Allen show, every show that he did. By 1969, at the age of 48, Rodney's success on Carson made him a national phenomenon. He could now command tens of thousands of dollars in Vegas, but he was about to be confronted with an event that would force him to choose between his family and his career. His ex-wife Joyce was suffering with debilitating arthritis, and she began drinking heavily to deal with her condition. Here's comedians Harry Basil and Paul Rodriguez. And here he was famous, he was Rodney Dangerfield, and there was a big demand for him to go on the road. The job of a stand-up comic is crowded, so crowded, and just to get a little bit of attention is so difficult, and when you have a little of attention, you want more. You don't just walk away because you got to raise some kids. Who does that? Rodney did. But he decided to open up his own club and put his name on it. Kind of like Ricky Ricardo with the club Babalu, you know, just going to work every day and being there for the kids and just going and working at nighttime. Rodney opened Dangerfields on New York's Lower East Side. The comedy club was a success, but it still failed to get him any respect. He said to me, he says, you know, here I am, I got my own club. 
I'm trying to do well. And, and this woman came up for me, Eddie, and she said, Rodney, could I have your autograph and some more butter? Joyce's condition continued to deteriorate, and she passed away, leaving Rodney the single father of seven-year-old Melanie and 11-year-old Brian. He had his priorities right. Raise his children once they were adults, once they had a, their, own, uh, their own lives, once his responsibility was over, he went back and became even bigger than he was. The first step after Rodney's return to the world of comedy was a chance meeting with a young director and writer named Harold Ramis, who was about to shoot a low-budget movie called Caddyshack. Here's the director of Caddyshack, Harold Ramis. Our first thought was uh, that maybe Don Rickles should play the part. But at the time, Rodney was had an amazing run on The Tonight Show. He was killing every time, just hysterically funny. And uh, I forgot who first said it, but we said, you know, maybe Rodney's the guy. We didn't know that if he could act, but we thought even if he couldn't act, just being himself would, uh, would work for us. And we know how that worked out. And when we come back, the final installment, the final segment of this terrific story, Rodney Dangerfield story. Here on Our American Story. Our American stories, and let's return where we left off with Rodney getting cast in the low-budget movie Caddyshack. Here's director Harold Ramis. So we worked on his first day's shooting, and I said, "All right, action, Rodney, action." He says, "You want me to do the bit?" I said, "Yeah, do the bit." Okay, so he, he didn't. He was so raw, he didn't even understand that action was the the signal to, to start. But. Uh, the the punchline to that is by the end of the shoot, he finished the scene and he came over to me and he said, I guess I'm an actor. The first scene he ever shot, he starts to sweat. I said, oh my God, this guy's going to have a heart attack. I go, you know, so in between takes, I go, Ronnie, are you okay? No, no. I said, what's, what's the matter? I suck. I'm suck. I'm, I'm, I'm dying out there. I said, what do you mean? Nobody's laughing. Nobody's laughing. I said, Rodney, they can't laugh. Right, because I suck. I said, Rodney, they can't laugh because they won't be able to use the soundtrack. So let's dance. Caddyshack was released in 1980 and was a smash hit. But its true success is found in the avid cult following it's developed over the years. Here's Everybody Loves Raymond co-star Brad Garrett. The man's a menace. Most comedians, that's probably one of their top ten movies of all time. And it's, it's what we call a road movie. It's something when we get on the bus or get on a plane, we take literally with us and we watch, and it stands up still today. In 1983, at the age of 61, 
Rodney was asked to play the role of a hard-living derelict and degenerate named Monty Capuletti. Here's the writer for Easy Money, Dennis Blair. This was like the height of his popularity, and he goes, so they want to do a movie starring me. So if you come up with an idea, let me know. So by the next night, I had this idea of just, you know, a guy has to stop drinking, smoking, and gambling for a year to, to get $10 million. He thought, that's a good idea. I'm very familiar with him, and there's a part of me that's part of him, too, you know? Uh, the idea that uh, a good time is going to the trek and having a few drinks and gambling. That's part of me, too, my personal life. It's hard to contain myself. That's where we got the idea for the movie. Comedy comes from tragedy, and that could not be more true about anyone uh, more than Rodney Dangerfield. He really was a tortured soul who turned it into uh, a lot of jokes and making everyone else laugh. Uh, but he didn't laugh a lot himself. Rodney's next movie was his greatest success and earned him a new generation of fans. Back to School dropped in 1986 engrossed more than $100 million at the box office and became another cult hit with the college kids, a group that would become one of Rodney's most enthusiastic fans. At 65, Rodney had finally climbed to the top of the comedy world. Mindful of his struggles, Rodney used his status and his HBO comedy show to help jumpstart the careers of talented and up-and-coming comedians. I know how tough it is for a comedian when he starts. If I see a guy who I think is funny, it's my pleasure to try to move him along. Here, let the people see him. He appreciated talent. In this thing called showbiz, he's one of the guys who's coming up real fast. He's and I like that about Rodney Dangerfield. He admired other comics because he loved the art of, of comedy. Robert Townsend has really died him. I don't Rodney had a lot of empathy for comedians, so he knew how difficult it was. Give it up for Robert Schimmel, okay? He genuinely had a daddy motivation where he kind of felt um, the, the need to nurture. I'm going to hire both of you. Rodney was offered by HBO a series of stand-up comedy specials where he would bring in stand-up comics and feature them on his HBO specials. He was the doorkeeper. He was able to open doors for guys that he really liked. All right, give it up now for Tim Allen. Okay, here we go. All right, Tim, here we go. Most of the people that were on those shows became superstars. All right. It was a big break for them in show business to be on a show with Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney was responsible for a whole bunch of superstars. Seinfeld, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was his opening act, which he was very proud of. Andrew Dice Clay, Roseanne Barr. Just all of these people became superstars. Dice was on for seven minutes, and he became an arena act, which meant he was selling out 15,000 seaters based on seven minutes on Rodney's HBO special, which was a phenomena. You're going to get a kick out of Bad Sam, okay, Sammy West. Sam Kinison was uh, rebellious. Uh, Sam was having a tough time in the business because he was different. It just shows how generous he was. Most comics are very threatened by other funny people. He would help us out. Sometimes we would sell him jokes that he'd never use because he knew we needed the money and, and he allowed us to keep our dignity, you know? Some really uh, bad material I sold him over the years. <laughs> Just having Rodney know you and think you're funny was like, a, you know, you carry it with you like a badge of honor. As a young guy back then, I was like, that was huge for me and for my confidence. After a 10-year courtship, Rodney, the 72-year-old Jew, 
married the 40-year-old Mormon Joan Child in 1993. His act was selling out all over the country. Everyone wanted to see Rodney. What do you say we bust up this joint? Bust a wide open, are you kidding? My wife and I are at one of Rodney's shows and Jim Carrey opened for him. And, and you know, it's like a comic opening for a rock star. Get the f*** off the stage! Bring out Rodney! We don't f*** you! Get out! And poor Jim Carrey left the stage in tears. I thought he was going to lose the business. As the 1990s came to a close, Rodney was approaching his 80s, and his years of hard living were beginning to catch up with him. On August 24, 2004, Rodney had heart valve replacement surgery. When asked how long he'd be hospitalized, he said, If all goes well, about a week. If not, about an hour and a half. After Rodney's um, final heart surgery, he slipped into a coma and was in the coma for 40 days. They pretty much uh, let me try everything to try to bring him out. And, um, and part of that included they gave me permission to bring in, um, beyond family, other people that had strong emotional connections to him. And I... Uh, I got on the phone and called a few comics. And they all knew the mission. Try to say something that maybe Rodney would react to. I heard some of the best material in the world from Jay Leno, Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler. Louis Anderson came almost every day. Bob Saget, Andrew Dice Clay, Roseanne, and we just thought there was there was hope. You know, I love Here's Jay Leno on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you a great Rodney story. I was pretty close to Rodney, and when Rodney was in the hospital, he was in a coma. And his wife, Joan, God bless her, she was by his side the whole time. And I go to visit Rodney, and we're standing there, and she goes, well, Jay, take Rodney's hand. So I take Rodney's hand. And she says, Rodney, if you know Jay's here, squeeze his finger. Okay, so I feel my finger get squeezed. And then I lean, and I said to Rodney, Rodney, that's not my finger. And Rodney... <laughs> And I could see Rodney kind of, you know, he just, you know, and I felt, I, I felt good. Cool. Oh, I made, Jay, I made right, one yeah. of my favorite guys laugh. <laughs> On October 5th, 2004, at 1.20 p.m., Rodney Dangerfield passed away at 82. A funeral was held for him a few days later. What a crowd, what a crowd. <laughs> the other day I told my kid, I said, someday you'll have children of your own. He said, so will you. <laughs> Well, last week my house was on fire. My wife told the kids, be quiet, you'll wake up daddy. Rodney is the only comic I can think of where guys get together and they'd all start quoting jokes of his. You know, my family, during the Civil War, they fought for the West. My wife, she's a lousy cook. Uh, at my house, we pray after we eat. <laughs> I, I, I miss Rodney. God, it's tough not to. I don't think he really believed he was that good. But the audience said, yes, you're wonderful. And he was. And uh, that's it. And, you know, he always said, hey, you got no respect. You got no respect. In, in reality, he, all he did was get respect. 
I just wish that everyone had the chance that I had to spend so much time with him and to um, see his humanity and his generous spirit. I was the luckiest girl in the world. Like everyone else in this thing called showbiz, I like applause, but I'll tell you, there's something to me that's more important than applause. Maybe nothing to you, but a lot to me. It's just when I walk off, if, if you're all just... Give me one of these. One of these is Rodney holding up the OK sign. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work as always, Greg. And his bride said it best, his humanity, his generosity. We were all lucky to know Rodney, that he shared his pain so honestly with us, made us all laugh about our own pain. He did what Arthur Miller said, all art should do. And that's make us all feel less alone. And Rodney did that. Rodney Dangerfield's story, here on Our American Stories. Am I 